Castle's services operate from the lands of the Darkin young people to the south, the Waramai people to the north, the Awabakal people to the east, and the Wadarua people to the west. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting this morning and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the latest episode of Embrace Your Otherness, Castle's inaugural podcast. This is a space where we have both casual and in-depth conversations with disability community members, leaders and activists about disability identity, culture, work and rights, with a real emphasis on challenging people's perceptions and raising awareness about marginalised identities. My name is Brad Webb, and I'm honoured to be both the CEO of Castle and the host of this podcast series. And I'm super excited to be welcoming Gillian Mason to join me as today's guest. When you Google Gillian Mason, do you know what comes up, the top search result? Well, I guess it's different, isn't it, for each of us? I have done it. Tell me. Well, let me read to you what came up when I Googled. Gillian Mason, Manager for Stroke Research Register Hunter and Clinical Researcher Centre, Centre for Rehab Innovations, University of Newcastle and HMRI, has been recognised as an inaugural 2021 Brilliant Women in Digital Award. Presented by Telstra Health, the award initiative has been presented to 25 women who showcase excellent technical expertise and have made contributions with significant impact across the health aged care, medical research and technology sectors. As a proudly disabled and chronically ill physiotherapist, Gillian has used her more than 15 years healthcare experience from both sides of the bedside to transform the way that people's lived experience is valued and included in the design of human-centered, digitally enabled, accessible health systems. That's a pretty awesome description, Gillian. Welcome to the podcast. I'm going to start by saying to you, can you tell us how you would describe yourself and how close that description reflects where you are today. Sure. And look, thank you. It's really an honour to have won that award and I'm thrilled that that comes up first in your um, Google search list because I was laughing thinking it's probably a daggy cat tweet that I made if I was to do it with the way an algorithm might steer um, steer things towards me. Um, yeah, look, I'm really proud of that award because it's recognition that um, work in improving how inclusive health systems are and um, medical research um, systems and infrastructure and culture is um, is important and valued and valued as part of mainstream efforts to digitize and digitally enable, you know, a great health system. Um, so, yeah, I'm really proud of that. But I would... Um, I would describe myself as someone who's a physiotherapist. I'm a, I'm a clinician who's worked in healthcare research. I'm a, a queer person, I'm disabled. And I have um, come over lots of years to a place where I'm really proud to be a disabled person. Um, that's taken a while. So I live with a couple of chronic illnesses and um, a genetic disability, a genetic connective tissue disorder that, um, you know, they all culminate together to um, change ways about uh, change things about the way my body works physically. Um, there's some differences in sensory things that I need to deal with, and I, you know, manage fatigue. I also have ADHD, and I say these things because they are um, like they're really important. They impact on the way that I function, and they also don't just impact in a negative way, but they are part of me. So you know, they determine how I function in the world and how my brain works and how, you know, yeah. There was an interesting, um, again, when 
before as we prepared for this podcast, you were talking about your experience becoming a physiotherapist and the way in which that was framed to you when you were aware of your illness and your disability. A bit about that experience and how that's spurred you on. Yeah, sure. So I was doing a physiotherapy degree here in Newcastle. Uh, I think it was my second or third year where uh, I really started to notice there was some physical problems going on for me and sought healthcare. I got a diagnosis of this connective tissue disorder, which is called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And the, the first doctor who had gotten to the bottom of what the issues were just said to me, look, essentially paraphrasing here, set your expectations very low like look towards getting a job in administration. Not that there's, you know, there's lots of very challenging jobs in in administration and their skills I do not have. (laughs) That's not my strong suit whatsoever. But essentially stop doing your physiotherapy degree. You will not be able to think in a dynamic way. You'll have too much fatigue, physically won't be able to manage a job that really challenges your, you know, challenges your brain, challenges your body. You won't be able to be on your feet for long periods of time. So yeah, just make some decisions now bad news and it's just because I was exposed to like medical research through university and I had this you know health literacy that perhaps other people wouldn't have in that situation and I went and sought out and read some research and realized that the advice that I was being given was based off the level of evidence which is basically some people's opinions so very experienced clinicians opinions but it wasn't a level of evidence that was based off many years of high level research and clinical trials. So even though it was the best advice that that person could give, because it was the highest level of evidence, they didn't present it to me that way. They didn't say, we don't know, I think this, there's other people who think, you know, perhaps this is what you should aim for, but we haven't proven that, that that's actually the case. So I also, you know, I was 21 at the time, Um, which is the perfect age to just not really accept authority (laughs) and listen to people. And I made a decision that, well, if there wasn't any evidence saying I couldn't do those things, then I'd just carry on, Um, seek some other advice. And um, I was able to get rehabilitation and kind of, you know, I also was in that stage of development where I felt it was very important to overcome all of this news that had been given to me and overcome my disability, pretend it didn't exist, make sure no one else knew about it and really push through. You know, I got really involved in competitive cycling when I had to quit my jumping type exercise because that wasn't good for my joints. Um, And so I don't regret any of those things, but I so wish that it could have been presented to me in a different way and that I didn't feel shame and like I had to pretend that I didn't have this illness and these disabilities and, you know, the only way to be in life was either to be pitied and to lower your expectations or to, you know, position yourself as kind of like a super crip and get on and overcome everything, you know, and, and pretend that the disability didn't affect you in any way. Was that pretense that you said you're pretending it wasn't there? Was that pretending to the outside world as yes. well as yourself? Yeah, look, absolutely both. Right. Um, you know, I was finishing my physiotherapy degree and and moving into the workplace as a professional for the first time. Like I'd been working in the fitness industry, which also is lots of brilliant things happening in the fitness industry. Don't get me wrong. However, there is such a a focus on image and such a focus on um, aiming for some perfectionist ideal. At least there really used to be when we're talking, you know, 18, 19 years ago now. Um, And in the workplace, you you know, it's bad if you have to take a sick day. 
and especially working in healthcare, it was all of my training and all of this expectation that we as health professionals, we are the, the role models and the people who are the holders of knowledge and you, you know, you must be well and not talk about, you know, the, the illness that you're living with or the disability that you have. You don't want to ask for special considerations. Um, there was a lot of that kind of culture that still um, persists and I wanted to do everything I could to prove them wrong and also just to carry on, push myself, make sure that no one would know. And because when I would tell people um, in my social circle or employers or colleagues, the first reaction when you tell someone that you've got a, a chronic illness, that basically you're sick or you have a disability, it's instantly sadness and loss and pity. That's, it just always is. Even I, I will find myself having these, this internalized ableism, these reactions too, when someone share this information with me because for some reason that's stronger than thinking about the context. Someone might say in passing or because they have a need, you know, I have this disability or, you know, when we go, I'm immune compromised. Like when we go out, we need to eat outside during the pandemic, for example, or make sure you, you know, book somewhere that has a wheelchair access because my friend who's coming, the initial reaction might be, oh, you, you know, mm, your poor mm. friend. That sounds like that's really hard rather than just receiving that information as something that you know a fifth of the population deals with disability should be quite normal if we're talking about access needs there's no reason for someone to think about that and have this kind of reaction of sadness or pity the pressure though to maintain that facade um, mm. in in the face of that must have been quite uh, quite challenging but and i'm not going to take that further at this stage, I really want to come back to then that setting of expectations that mm -hmm. you could have, your career could have derailed at that point in that conversation where uh, a lesser person may have said, actually, you're right. I should give up, I should refocus, I should reconsider. And that's a really important shift I think we need to take in, in society to, to um, create the space in which the expectation isn't that instant reaction. I mean, that's the social model of disability in, yeah. in action. It spurred on some of your work and some of your, uh, can you tell me a bit about that, uh, the work you're doing now, um, yes. which seems to me to be almost a direct line from, from that experience of, okay, now I need to open up and prove for, uh, help people prove that people with disability actually do uh, have scope to be successful and the, there is research that demonstrates that. Do you want, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I us? can. Um, I want to pick up though on something that you said um, absolutely in a well-intentioned way. You know, we're having this conversation about saying, well, but you, you know, you didn't do what they said and you didn't accept the low expectations and um, you know, a lesser person may have. That's just this, this way we think about it, isn't it? So if you, if you manage to overcome it or get past it, there's somehow a, a moral um, kind of weighting or value put on that. Mm. Whereas I think the reason, and I've had, I for years thought it was because I'm really tough and I really valued that. And I love thinking I'm better than all of this illness. You know, I'm, I don't want a disability. I don't want that because I see that as less than, but it wasn't um, that I was a, a better person. It was that I was in the middle of a physiotherapy degree and I'd learned about research. And so I was able to question, like I had the resources and I had the knowledge. So it was the context. Um, it really was. As much as my ego would like to think it was my brilliance in that moment. Um, and that's not to say then I haven't gone on and done things in my career, which I'm really proud of and which absolutely are through grit and hard work and um, 
because as you know women we shouldn't say oh we're just lucky it was just luck that we ended up there you know I've, mm-hmm. I've worked hard and I'm proud of achievements but in that moment my career didn't derail because I had resources and health literacy and parents who could pay for me to go and see another specialist and get another opinion um, so and I mean that's part of you know the work that you're doing and the work that I'm trying to do now it's making sure that people have the resources and that there's not these expectations around them which um, make it so much harder. Yeah. So tell me about your work. But my work today. Yeah. So I mean, I told you already that I'm a I'm a clinician and a physio, but now that really kind of is um, the smallest part of what I do. I use that clinical background to help to inform what I'm doing. But I work in um, at Hunter Medical Research Institute as what's called the community and consumer involvement lead, which is kind of big words for saying how do we Im- include people who live with illness the the illnesses that are being researched how do we include um, the community in the work that we're doing so this isn't about uh, only trying to find people to take part as kind of participants in the research it's about figuring out how we assemble teams of people who have the right expertise to solve the problems that we're trying to solve so alongside scientists i help to connect people who you know, understand who have been through that health system that they're trying to change to improve, who can bring that expertise of knowing what it's like, um, you know, all the extra barriers that come up against a person when they're trying to follow through with a treatment or something like that. Um, so it's a role that is a little bit of matchmaking, but mostly about translating between people and um, so making people understand each other's needs and essentially helping the process of putting together high performance teams of people with the right expertise. So so just to be clear for me then, you're talking about the point prior to or around the time of the research design as well. Yeah. Not just, okay, now I'm I'm a researcher, I've defined the research question that I want to answer, this is how I'm going to approach it. You're almost talking about co-design or participation, bringing lived experience into that, even what is the question. Yeah. Is there an example where you've seen that work really effectively? Yeah, there's one I'm thinking of. Um, there's a, there's actually a lot of really brilliant co-design work and consumer or patient or you know community-led research happening now. Um, but this program called the I Rebound After Stroke Program that's just been launched last year, that's been a piece of work that um, started as a research project looking at how you could use telehealth to help people who had had a stroke to prevent them from having another one. Basically, um, if you've had a stroke, you're really likely um, to have another one within the next couple of years, the research shows. And what you need to do to prevent it is all the boring and hard things like exercise more, eat better um, food, all these things that anyone has trouble with. But whilst that initial project showed that all these things could be done, there weren't people living with stroke involved in choosing how you would measure that. Right. So therefore then when it's designed, it kind of meets the clinician's needs, it meets the health service needs, and we've figured out how we can do that without it costing more money and we can deliver it to more people, so that's good. But the outcomes weren't really what was important to the person with stroke. And it wasn't able to include lots of different people who have different stroke-related disabilities because they kind of weren't thinking about that. So how it's evolved over time is bringing people in, not um, only to talk about how satisfied they were with the process, but making sure that the way the information was communicated to people was 
easier to understand, sounded actually interesting. Wasn't just kind of blaming the person with stroke for not being very active because frankly, you know, who who is? It's not a, um, a widespread problem that everyone's really fit unless they have a disability or have had a stroke. Um, and so it's about making sure that the research really feels relevant and is designed to meet people's needs. So they ended up being not just a consumer advisory panel, but people employed as experts, subject matter experts, to develop something that works for people who only have use of one hand, mostly when they're cooking, and involves hacks. Um, the material is presented and it's accept- like it's presented to people with stroke, by people with stroke. It really isn't this model of saying, health professional says this, and if you don't do it and you have another stroke, well, basically we told you what to do. Um, it's changed, changed things a lot and it's so popular now. It's being very practical. It's practical to access. Yeah. There were two things you said, I just want to dive into them. They're related. One was the concept of a research advisory panel, but then you immediately talked about employed. Yeah. Um, is there an, there's an important distinction there, isn't there, between being a panel member and being seen as advisory versus actually being a paid member of a team? Do you think that's an yeah. important part of this process? It absolutely is. Yeah. And there's a role for all of these different things. There, there absolutely is. But... You can't create an environment, we we're talking about inclusive environments, you can't create an environment where people's expertise is going to be valued in the same way if some of those people and how it has been the researchers are employed in a, in a role where they've got job security, they're thinking about this all of the time and they're paid. If we bring in people who live with the condition and they're there for a couple of hours they've volunteered so it's really it's cost them money because they've had to pay for transport whatever else to come and then they're not given time to get their head around the whole context of the project what's going on so you you set up this if you do it that way you set up a power dynamic that doesn't allow equal sharing of ideas and it also it continues to marginalize the person who you're bringing in as the supposed lived experience expert so where there's lots of different ways that patients and consumers should be employed in roles as part of teams and there's a place for advisory committees um yeah depending on what needs to happen there's so many um dynamics at play in a research project Um, one of those is the funders how have the funders at a national level of research and i'm talking the national health and medical research council and the big the big players that have got funding are they driving this conversation about truly inclusive co-designed research Look, they are, they are driving a conversation, um, yes, and there is more importance being put on it. There's guidelines. There's a commitment to doing it better, but it's being led by patients and consumers. It, it's, there's a movement around doing work that uh, doesn't just talk about being inclusive and doesn't just make sure that you've got someone on your team, but it actually upskills researchers and changes culture so that we work with people in accessible ways and in inclusive ways. So it's not just relevant for people who live with disabilities. It's about making sure that when you bring people in that you're creating a a workspace where everyone has the knowledge that they need and the time that they need and the resources that they need to work together. There's extra layers on top when people have disabilities. Um, But the thing there is that What's really frustrating to me, what I'm really trying to work on in in a few different roles is not just expecting that the research participants or the consumers will be the ones with the disabilities because a fifth of Australians have disabilities. 
So we need to be thinking about this in terms of accessible ways of working for all of our healthcare workforce, all of our like all, all workforce. So I, me being the person um, or being a person who lives with disability and being open about that and proactive about talking about it is tiring, but it's, it's really important. Um, I think about this a lot from the perspective of physical inclusivity and being a physically inclusive city. And I'm talking about for, for people in wheelchairs, being able to access buildings, to access facilities, to access the community, that that is not just about a person who is a wheelchair user. That's about people with prams. That's people with general mobility issues. It's actually a benefit to all of society, yet it still gets framed as disability inclusion as opposed to community inclusion. And I think it's important that we've got a reason to do that and a perspective on that. But uh, yeah, I think research strikes me as a similar thing. And I wanted to jump to the researchers themselves. How open have researchers been? Because having a panel, an advisory panel, is a very different proposition to actually redesigning your entire research question, research project around an equal member of the team bringing that perspective to the table. Yeah. So researchers are really receptive and I think there really is, not I think, I know, um, the position that I'm working in now at HMRI, it's, it's a new one. So six months in, what I've learned is that there's a lot more involvement of consumers and the community than I think most people would think. We tend to kind of really like focusing on the problems which are there to be solved. Um, But researchers are receptive. The way that research works, the research environment, the funding landscape genuinely makes things really difficult. Um, And it's been kind of within this role that just helping people to rethink different ways that they work. So whilst they're receptive, it's been really hard to put aside time and realize that you need to upskill and that you can't just keep doing things the way that you were doing if you're trying to bring in new, essentially it's like a new profession, having consumers who are, or people with lived experience of something who are gonna come and join in your team and have a new role. So I'm kind of, I've got this hope because I can see where, you know, in that, without the new professions have started off, it just takes some time. So they're receptive, they need to learn skills and stop thinking about um, the consumers as vulnerable people who really need to be, they need their access needs to be met. They need to be put in a position where it's possible for them to actually do the work that they need to do, give the advice, but not kind of treated like someone who's there, you know, to do a bit of charity. And yeah, there's been a... um, there's a lag in the culture catching up to realize that these people are coming in to just be part of the team and we need to accommodate them, yes, but their expertise is really valuable. Have you seen um, the kind of epiphany moment of a researcher who suddenly encounters disability in their life, either themselves acquiring a disability or a family member that has actually been a game changer or shifted their their perspective and the influence that has on the culture around them. Yeah, yep. And whilst that's that's really useful when that happens for someone because they can see and it's so incredibly frustrating that it takes that Mm. and that we aren't just used to kind of believing people and um, having this idea that disability is just a normal part of the human existence. Um, Yeah, so people learn lots of things in lots of different ways, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I should have disclosed earlier to um, my own involvement with HMRI over the years and I was in the establishment of the 
um, community research register in its very early days. It's so exciting to see that it's evolving to a point where it's uh, less of that passive people coming in to participate, um, which is really important. And we've been so lucky in the Hunter to have that degree of engagement and involvement and willingness of people to participate in research. But now to this active engagement where people are contributing to the question that uh, that surely has to shape the future of of research um, and research outcomes. Yeah. yeah it's pretty, um, I, I think that it's, it's so fantastic. Look, it's exciting and it's not, um, it shouldn't be surprising because in other industries, in the rest of life, we're more used to um, more kind of democratised decision-making, or we should be, that's what we kind of aspire to be. Um, and in other industries, change is really led by consumer needs and community needs rather than a preconceived idea of, of what we need. And healthcare is so incredibly complex uh, and people with disabilities have been left out because we haven't been valued as someone who I guess is normal and well. We're accessing the healthcare system because we want something kind of either improved or fixed or we want some suffering to be reduced. There's a reason why we're coming in but seeing, it's really exciting seeing this shift in thinking and in the way that things work away from that idea that disabled people are only coming to see us because they want to be fixed and they want to be made normal. It's like, no, let's just make sure that the whole system is accessible so that we can come in with whatever need that we have yep. Yep. on that day, yep. like everyone else. Yeah, because yep. sometimes it's just purely about being able to access everyday healthcare. Yeah. It's not about fixing anything oh, or look. addressing... A, uh, an illness it's it's actually just being able to open the door oh if i want to go into say my gp's on leave and i want to go in and see someone else at the same practice and talk about a routine sexual health issue particularly something where if they read my medical file beforehand they don't think i'm coming in for just something very normal I, you, you know, you need to kind of backtrack and go, how will I present this to them? Because they're going to think that I'm coming in to talk about all these other big things and they must give that the appropriate amount of um, reverence almost and express how sorry they am for me that I've been through all of this stuff. And you're like, actually, no, I just need to talk about this thing, <laughs> just this yeah, thing. Yeah. After a vaccination, I need to yeah. go traveling, all of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it makes it, it makes it harder on many levels because we've got to think disabled people live in the world like everyone else and are subject to marginalization for lots of other things too. Mm. Like already approaching that health consult, I'm thinking, all right, we could, this is going to be a heteronormative conversation. I'll be asked about my husband. I'll be, you know. I've got to correct people so many times before and then and then finally can we please say you know no I'm not here about these disability things no I don't need your pity about that just really want to talk about this thing that's right and there's narrow you've got this narrow consultation window as well yeah Waste. so it just um it stacks up and when we're creating spaces that are inclusive we need to allow people to come and let you know what they're there to talk about what they're bringing but also knowing what their access needs are so we could almost take these two ways. I'm thinking you've asked about creating um, ways of working in research with people where researchers do need to ask people what their access needs are. And they need to know a bit about someone's, if they're inviting them into a cancer trial, they do need to know that they've experienced kind of the right type of cancer to make them yep. the expert in that study. And they need to ask them about like are there do you have fatigue are there are you in a chemo cycle what needs do you have but they don't need to and they ought not be needing to ask the person more personal questions 
about their health all the time and checking in and expecting them to share all this extra emotional stuff that they wouldn't be asking their other colleagues. Mm. I was thinking about that, the, the, something you said very early about the, um, yeah, the sadness and the pity that comes on. I mean, if that's the filter that every interaction starts with, oh, okay, let's put on some sadness and some pity. Let's start through that filter as opposed to just getting to the core of the issue. That's part of the issue that we're talking about here. Yeah. 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 So, so if a person with disability is saying this all sounds fantastic, and I'm really want to embrace this opportunity to contribute and to participate, what's their entry path to a conversation about supporting research and to being an active participant? Yeah. Well, they ought to be able to find us really easily. We're doing some work around that. Um, I mean, if someone wants to get involved in Hunter Medical Research Institute's research, they can email, pick up the phone, and you know we can start a conversation. But what we need to do, we're in the process of doing it, what I'd love to see more of in the health system, is to have an entry point that shows you that you are welcome, that has an Auslan, a video of Auslan interpreted information right up front, so you can decide whether or not you want to get involved in that thing. It should say up front, please let us know what access needs you have. And, you know, all of the entry points need to be accessible, not just practically, but accessible because it looks like you will belong there. And, um, you know, we, we can aim to meet your access needs. Like we need to actually do more to welcome people in, I think, rather than it being up to people with disability to think, okay, today I've got the energy to ring up and see if I can be in that trial and then ask them if they have a wheelchair accessible venue and then ask them if I can have an interpreter. Like it's lots of permission seeking all of the time. Um, I want people to feel comfortable and welcome to approach us. But I, re I really think it's up to institutions, organisations to do more to seek out people and be welcoming. Um quick plug what's the website people can jump onto if they are going to actively reach out to you yeah so it, searching for hunter medical research institute is probably the easiest way um i'm having a mind blank as to what the web address is but if you search for participate in research you'll find you'll find my contact details and um some information there yeah that's excellent yeah. i think uh, i'd certainly like to encourage people we'll include a web link uh, with with the podcast so people um, my memory says it's hmri.org.au but yes. uh, we'll double check that for you yeah how we've talked about your experience with a less visible disability and we also know people have a very visible exp expression of their disability and, and there's, all, there's certainly differences so if we can focus on people that have less vis visible disabilities what how can a person in that situation broach the conversation about accessibility say in the workplace or or in general uh, particularly if they're carrying that sense of stigma and wanting to to maintain their kind of uh, the persona that 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 they're not a person with disability because there's a tension there that uh, you've you've obviously navigated as you've gone through life and you talked about your pride now in being able to own that but what's the yeah. starting point do you think for people mm. i wish i had a really confident one-line answer um i think the starting point is to try and talk to some other people personally who've done it before the starting point should be any organization's hr department um, especially if there's a an extra part of that department that clearly is for access needs and disability related needs or work health and safety. Um, but it is important to try and get the language 
right and not right so that you can tick the right boxes that they'll care or that they'll have a thing for you but right that you feel comfortable with it because making a decision about whether to disclose something that you don't need to it has ramifications and they're not always good ones it shouldn't be a a high-risk conversation it shouldn't be. be the reality is now that it still is and i want to encourage people to do it but to figure out what language is going to be safe for you to use in the workplace if you're a wheelchair user, you don't get that luxury, I guess, of deciding whether or not you're going to tell someone. But if you know or if you realize that you have access needs that need to be met, um, you need to figure out how to tell. And I've been in situations before where because I, was, I, I wanted to be open and I wanted to share something because I had needs, um, I needed flexibility. I'm thinking about a few examples. Flexibility with my start time to manage around health appointments and chronic disease management stuff that I need to do. I'm not a morning person, but it's not a preference when I need to start late and have flexibility. It's a disability access need. So I was trying to figure out with my managers how to talk about there's these autonomic nervous system issues that I have. Whereas if I get up in the morning and I rush, I'll have blood pressure control problems all day. I might have gastrointestinal problems. There will be things that crop up for me if I don't manage my mornings well that mean that I'm not productive later in the day. But when you start to unpack that, because they don't, it's unfamiliar, it's maybe not quite believed, the more you tell them, then they end up having this pity, sorry response again. <laughs> and then you're doing all this emotional labor instead of just getting on with your work day. And then it feels like you have to over explain things all the time. So the entry point to me is figure out how you're going to frame it. Talk to your doctors about it if you, if you have access to doctors that understand. I've used job access before. I know there's different services that um, you offer as well. There's advocacy services. To get your story, not straight because you're not telling a fib, but get your story um, lined up so that you're comfortable to share, I have these access needs. It's around this medical condition or it's around this disability. How can we make that work for the team? without apologizing for it because it's not your fault no there's so much of it i'm so sorry if this interrupts the team it's just how can we make this work you know i can tell you about that emotional labor and um uh, and the work and the emphasis that on the person with disability to take that work if one thing comes out of these conversations that we have through the podcast series it's that people start to sit back and think a little bit differently um, about the conversations about how they can Uh, be open-minded and think about the conversations and even make it easier for people to have those conversations. That would be uh, a great outcome if we could get there. I want to come forward with a bit of of hope too and things really are changing. So um, I'm a board member of the Australasian Institute of Digital Health and as an example, they were aware of you know my own disability needs. I've spoken at conferences about them. So in terms of me coming in, they were expecting that you know, I will have access needs, so I was asked about it. But at the first strategy day that I went to, it was a much larger group, right off the bat, the chair, you know, asked people whether or not there were extra things we would need to think about on that day. You know, I'm aware of some things, but who else has extra access needs? You are welcome to bring them up with me. We want to make sure everyone's productive during this day. With these and this is what we will be doing, you know, the information was there in advance. So you had an opportunity to say what your needs were. And, you know, another board member spoke up and said, yes, I have this sensory processing, um, you know, situation. I can't remember exactly what it was. And the reason I can't was because there wasn't the onus on that person telling us all of their medical history. 
There was just, so this is what my need is. Will that work? And it's just a normal and conversation. Just got on with it. And then the next person says, well, I need to leave at 2.30 because I need to pick up the kids. So it's just a normal part of how we work together. What are your needs? Um, so... Um, yeah, that I'm putting that forward because it's hopeful. It's, that's hopeful to me that there are situations like this, whereas that wasn't the case 15 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You, you've opened a lovely segue for me because I wanted to swing back to the award that you received. It was, it was talking about digital access, digital inclusion, uh, digital health. Um, it has been, I think COVID has taught us and opened up some incredible doors around telehealth and uh, digital access, but it's not as simple as just having a consultation over a Zoom call and, and the like, but it's an important um, new conversation that we can have it and others were having it, but now it's been mainstreamed almost. Can you tell us a bit about the, your, your work in digital health? Yeah, so I started getting involved in that space as a hobby, <laughs> really on the side of what I was doing. Um, in terms of the advocacy space around digital health and inclusion. Um, I was already clinically using telehealth for some things, like, like you said, and, and didn't realise that my lived experience that I had of disability and of just having used the health system a lot, it's quite um, eye-opening when you kind of chart it all and have a look at the amount of hours and the amount of different types of contacts you've had with the health service. Um, I started realizing that, that was a real asset, that expertise that I had. Um, so I could use that and, and leverage that lived experience to start working more in trial design and then with the Institute at doing advocacy work and talking to companies and talking to startups and talking to others about expecting people to be disabled and not thinking, okay, we want to be inclusive. So once we've designed um, a new electronic medical record system, for example, we'll see whether or not we can kind of retrofit it for people or, you know, we'll design um, a new clinical decision-making tool. So some piece of software that helps a doctor or a clinician to predict what will happen for a person. But we'll exclude anyone with disabilities when we do the original study and have heaps of data about kind of everyone else and then maybe see if it will work. It's not going to work later. No, and it's all just extraordinary to be having this conversation given that one in five Australians mm. have a disability. So to, that, that's yeah. a statistically significant proportion of the population to yeah. not even be considering them in the up. Yeah, section. that's right. And um, no doubt there are people with disabilities in those data sets, but they haven't told anyone. And um, you know, data collection processes or appointments. You know, there's so many different things that aren't broadly accessible to people and we haven't even really thought about what accessibility means. So now, and thank goodness, we usually are thinking about physical access. So it's unusual that a hospital or a um, medical research centre site won't have ramps. They might not have toilets that are very accessible. Um, but there hasn't been an invitation for people to talk about the other stuff. And so we don't collect um, data that describes disability in the medical record to even have a look at what's different and what needs to happen. So my work in that space is, um, it's varied. I mean, I do some speaking, I get involved as a consumer representative when there's think tanks about new services and kind of will help to um, give advice on how to find people with different kinds of lived experience to include on teams so that, um, you know, you'll have the right expertise. And it's about finding people who 
aren't just someone who has the same disability as you have or the same health condition. It's about finding someone who has an experience or who's working in the kind of work that you want to be doing or has these other skills who also is dealing with um, disability, you know, barriers to employment, someone with enough common experience that they actually can help you or that you can develop a mentoring relationship with. So it just opens up your network. Like the other piece I was going to say is that I'm involved in using my technical skills in digital health and my clinical skills um, and being able to do that work, that normal work, um, but have a disability access lens and an inclusion lens and be doing almost what is really activist work, but through very ordinary daily work things. That's kind of the other part of it. So social media allows you to have access to enough people. You can find someone like that. Because if you didn't have that, and in the days I didn't have anyone else to talk to when I was first diagnosed with you know, the reason for things I was experiencing, I was just told it would be bad um, and told not to aim very high, that I would always need help with stuff. And now I like getting help with stuff, but I get to decide what that looks like. And it wasn't until I met two people in real life who had um, immunoglobulin infusions next to me in hospital. You know, we sat next to each other every three weeks for seven years, got to know each other really well. That was my community. And kind of over that time, then I found other communities on, on social media. But I very nearly didn't have access to any of that. And unless I'd had my thinking change and talking to those two women who are parents who were... Um, you know, they're people who are great problem solvers and talking to them about their different ways they did things in work, that just really helped me to stop thinking about this in a diminutive way. And I sought those networks out because I don't think, I didn't like being in disability spaces on the internet for a long time because mm -hmm. I didn't want to be disabled. Can I ask about that journey from hiding your disability or not for to yourself and to others to embracing it and understanding it and being proud of it you used the word pride earlier if i'm not yeah. mistaken yeah look i'm i don't think having a disability is something to aspire to and i put that in because there's this kind of disquiet and this conversation i'm seeing more and more on social media from some people in the medical system who are thinking, well, now this is something cool to have. It's a way to find community, right? Um, and more people are getting diagnosed with these things. Is it just because it's trendy? Like, it's rubbish. But there is pride to be found in, in your otherness and um, realizing that it's not, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's, it's just getting rid of that shame and feeling like it's not a bad thing to say that today I'm in a lot of pain so I'm going to change my, you know, I'm fidgeting here and moving all around. That's a pain management thing. I also kind of, it just allows my brain to focus. I can move around. Whereas before I would never have spoken about that publicly. I might've talked to my two friends and confidants who, you know, are going through the same thing. But now on social media and in, in the rest of life, I feel much more confident just to plainly say, you know, this is what's going on for me today. This is what I need. And I can just be much more of my authentic self. Yeah, I'm not performing something that's different to um, what's really going on for me. And I feel that's a little bit of a responsibility. I've taken that on as a little, it shouldn't be everyone's responsibility, but I'm in a position of, um, you know, relative 
like power's the wrong word, but a position of seniority, I guess now, where I'm less worried about it having a negative impact on my career. Yep. So it's my responsibility to show other people that it's completely normal to talk about these things. And the opportunity you have to influence that conversation is, um, tr is tremendous, you know, yeah. to being able to, to both from a job function and role, you're empowered to do that, but yeah. also as an individual, um, feeling that that's something you can and should and want to do, I think yeah. is a, yeah, a tremendous place to be. Yeah. And suffering, because there's, there's absolutely suffering that goes along with these sorts of conditions often. Um, and suffering coexists with joy and an experience being in a different way. Like I've got some really funky sensory things that go on with my legs. But sometimes when it's really hot and I've been in the ocean and I ride my bike home through the wind, it's just this lovely, weird feeling going on of like tingling things on my legs, which I know is a paresthesia, it's a disability thing. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of other things that I wouldn't have ever said that because it would sound weird. But, you know, that's just the joy of living in my body. Mm -hmm. If um, we're, ne we're nearing the end, I'm, I'm just, do you have any advice for the medical profession for service providers in a general sense, um, almost like is there a magic bullet or is there something you would ask of them to think about when it comes to being a more inclusive and safe space for people with disability? Yep. The most important thing is to ask the person why they're there to see you and, and what they would like to talk about upfront all of the time rather than making assumptions. Uh, and. I guess just expect people to have access needs. That needs to be an expectation. If people don't, okay, carry on. Um, but if we're not asking people what their needs are, then we're never going to know that they need to be met. And I wanna say at the same time, I understand what it's like to be a clinician now, today, and the time pressures and the pressures that are often on you, the way that things work, to get things done without much help, I know it's really hard. It's not up to the individual clinician actually to be responsible for everything. It's up to all of us to, to change the way that the systems work. But just expect disability to be a part of the normal human existence and that people aren't always coming to you to be fixed. They're coming to you with a specific issue. That's uh, sage advice, not just for clinicians in the health system. I think anybody in that scenario to, uh, to assume that there's an inclusion or an access need and to start with the question of why are you here and what can I do to help you? Yeah. yeah. I want to round out. This is the Embrace Your Otherness podcast series. Um, and I did give you a heads up. What does Embrace Your Otherness mean to you, Jillian? It means disability pride, like we talked about before. Um, it means knowing that I don't love all the things that go on for me because of my disability, but it doesn't make me less than anyone else. Um, some of the things I've, you know, some of the things I've learned through operating as a disabled person working in healthcare has made me a better clinician and has given me expertise that I can use. And they're really valuable skills that are an asset to the people I'm working with and the systems. Um, but it's not everyone's responsibility to use their otherness for some greater benefit. It's completely okay just to be proud of who you are and carry on with your life however you want to be living it. On that note, I, I have really enjoyed this conversation. It's been illuminating um, on a range of fronts personally and professionally. 
I just want to say thank you for taking the time to spend with us in conversation, uh, for sharing your story so uh, openly and honestly, um, but also for the work you do, which is changing perceptions, changing the way in which uh, we can improve health outcomes um, and social outcomes for people with disability. Thanks so much, Gillian. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.